What's up, guys? Welcome back to Muscle Minds with Scott Stevenson. I'm Scott McNally. All of our programming is brought to you by truenutrition.com. You can use our code THINK for some additional savings on great supplements. Hit me up if you want to ask about flavors, anything like that. If you're in Canada, check out supplementsource.ca. You can get blowout deals, closeout products, uh, short dated label change, all sorts of good deals over there. We're also brought to you by Patreon. And listen, I appreciate the hell out of everybody who has been supporting the show over there. And this program, as well as all our programs, are brought to you by this book, Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach. You can go to byobbcoach.com and you can put this up on your shelf like I do because it makes you look, uh, you know, like I, I have uh, fancy, nice things. Actually, this is a great book. I highly suggest it to anybody um, for, you know, literally 100 bucks or 60 bucks for the ebook. You can literally do your entire season, your entire year yourself all the way from planning to off season to getting on stage. Scott, what's up, man? Someone says, who's your coach? You just pull the book out and say, this is my coach. Yeah, I'm this my coach. This and my own brain. Yeah, yeah. I'm my own coach. <laughs> Actually, on? one of the topics one of the topics for today, I think the one we're going to lead with, is covered extensively in the book. Um Talking about essential amino acids and branched chain amino acids, oh. and protein synthesis, etc. Yeah, it's, there's a huge, it's a monstrous. And you know what? We're speaking of John. That was one of the topics. One of the things I miss about John was getting together and just, you know, we do videos. He does this, I think, with everyone, but or did this with everyone. But and he's just winging a topic. Said, like, "What should we talk about?" Yeah. And like one of the one of the, one of my favorites was literally. I think we were we got done training and. Uh, he was talking about Mark Dugdale had been doing saunas, and he started doing saunas, and he's like, I really don't know anything about him so much. I'm like, I'm like, well, how about I write an article about him because I don't know anything about him. So I wrote an article that's on Mountain Dog Diet. It's been up for a little while now, a few years. And this was a topic like that. Okay. Um, he's like, what's the deal with branched-chain amino acids and essential amino acids? Yeah. Um, because branched-chain amino acids are, are such that they're like one of the, the, the biggest old-school supplements. Oh yeah, you know, yeah, and that yeah, was a, you're forever. alluding to this question we had gotten in the previous right. episode, which, by the way, guys, um, if we use any of your questions for the show, they get entered into a monthly contest that True Nutrition is helping us with, Scott. So every question we Ooh. use from YouTube or uh, from uh, Facebook or from Patreon. Uh, I'm entering them into a raffle, and if you win, you get a three-pound bag of protein. So I'll, I'll be using a random generator to pick one lucky person per month. And, uh, yeah, I thought that was kind of cool of them to do. Yeah, that's very cool. So, would, have you tried the cricket protein? Just not to get us too far off. Does he still offer that? I know it was a thing for it, for a little while. I don't know if anybody I, bought it. I have a bag, but it was sitting. I got it um, to try on like before the pandemic. Yeah. So it's been sitting for a while, and it's been in the heat, so it may not be so so yummy. Ugh. But I just wondered. No, yeah. I, I have not. <laughs> but here is the question, okay. though, that we that Scott was mentioning. Uh, question for the next episode: What does Scott think of BCAAs versus EAAs? Scientists say BCAAs are more important because of mTOR activation. On the other hand, I've heard John Meadows recommend EAAs, uh, or do amino acid supplements matter if, at all if enough complete protein is consumed? Okay, yeah, and fun, I forgot that John was mentioning that question because 
John John had sort of suspected the EAAs, I think, just from kind of experience and sort of made sense. And then I helped clarify um, with the article that I wrote, which I then expanded upon. So here's here's the deal. It's there's there's such a really fascinating. I could, I could this is a I haven't really gone into it because I knew we wouldn't want to spend too much time on the area, but. Um, if you look at what happens, and this has been tested like literally one of the essential amino acids at a time, the most important sort of the, uh, the, the king at the top of the hill is leucine. That's one of the branch chain amino acids. They're named that way because of the, the chemical structure and in particular that our group, it's called the part of the amino acid that's not the amino part. Can, that can be stripped away and then used to produce glucose um, is is readily available in the branch chain amino acids. So one thing that happens, one reason why people are like, oh, I got to use BCAAs, because <laughs> we know that during endurance exercise you you preferentially oxidize the branch chain amino acids because they are very good fuel sources. So you see those stripped away from muscle. So you're in that. Scenario where you've woken up, you're starting to do cardio, you're fasted, and if you go really, really high in exercise intensity, I've seen values, I think, up to close to 10% of the energy can be derived from amino acids okay. um, in a fasted state. So so they're going to take the BCAAs to uh, you know prevent that. And um, you can, some degree, supplement that those those branched chain amino acids that be, would be derived from your skeletal muscle with what's what you're taking in. So that's part of the part of the deal. The big picture, which we covered many times before, I believe, essential amino acids are the ones your body can't produce, and you'd be taking from your food. There's some conditionally essential as well, but those nine essential amino acids, the body is very very smart and that those are the things that are necessary in order to really initiate muscle protein synthesis because those are the essential um, supplies the components of building the house on our quintessential construction site the muscle cell and without it you're going nowhere you don't have what you don't have the nails you don't have the two by fours to build the house you have to have those things the other amino acids can be can be produced they can be salvaged perhaps you still want to have them all. If you just take essential amino acids and nothing else, you'll turn on protein synthesis. The system is set up to, okay, check, check, check. We got all those EAA check boxes in line. We can start the protein synthetic process. But if you don't take the other, if you just took EAAs all the time, well, eventually, like, you're going to have to use, use you're going to have to come up with amino acids to build the muscle somewhere else. So you go too far. And this has been studied. Churchward Venn is the name of the first author on this on this paper. Really good one. You'll end up shooting yourself in the foot because you don't um, you, your protein synthesis will turn off. You just don't have the available as others. So the essentials are essential. They're the ones that trigger the protein synthesis. Leucine, one of the branch chain, leucine, valine, and isoleucine. Those are the three branch chain amino acids. Leucine does the best job of turning on protein synthesis in terms of the magnitude. And then if you look at some of the downstream molecular signals that get evoked, leucine sort of stands alone as being pretty important. So it's kind of like you get your, your deliveries of all your essential supplies for turning on the, the construction project, and you're looking for kind of leucine to be on the package label. Ah, it's got leucine. Good, good, good. It's got all the others. Yes, good, good, good. We're ready to go. 
Here's the thing, though. Because, well, let me let me toss this out because it's kind of an important important um, point. There's actually, and I found a, a, a meta-analysis on this. It was done recently, too. There's actually a good amount of literature, and the meta-analysis supports this idea, that branched-chain amino acids do indeed, in of themselves, you just take those, reduce muscle soreness. So that fits with the idea of reducing muscle breakdown because they're supplying those branched-chain amino acids. Part of the metabolism that's goes that that happens when you're when when you're in exercise situation, let's say without the branched-chain amino acids, or when those are there, um, there's a branched-chain amino acid dehydrogenase enzyme, basically that is uh, the sort of the rate limiter for breaking things down. If you feed the muscle branched-chain amino acids you will tend to turn that on. The system is highly regulated, but the branched-chain amino acids turn on pro proteolysis to some degree. So while you do indeed reduce breakdown and reduce soreness from the branched-chain amino acids, chest feeding the branched-chain amino acids tends to increase turnover in the muscle. And in doing so, you can shoot yourself in the foot and that you don't create a scenario where you've got positive protein balance. You turn on protein synthesis, you turn on breakdown, you can actually go the other way around. So hmm. just the branched chain amino acids is sort of like, uh, you can. I'm going to use an analogy, I'm just coming up with this. It's like you send in that big pallet full of what, are all, what would normally be all the, because you wouldn't find just a source of branched chain amino acids in nature. Yeah. The system isn't set up to think, Someone's trying to trick me here with just the BCAAs. <laughs> Normally, you got those. You got all the EAAs, right? Yeah. So your workers start getting to work, and they're like, they're like, it's almost like they're trying to pound invisible nails because they haven't got the essential amino acids, and there's nothing's happening. They're just expending energy. Huh. So you set the, you set the system in motion. I'm doing I'm, this is very um, generalized. I'm not being very specific intentionally with the bio biochemistry sure. here, but you set the system in motion in a way that has some effects, which of course would contribute to a placebo effect. If you've got a reduction in muscle soreness, that is something that you notice specifically. That's something that, and that, that's pretty powerful effect actually. That's something that could lend you to, lend you to, to think, get you to think, hmm, something's going on here. And once the placebo's in effect, well then you can just roll with that. You only need a couple exposures to something that you know because you've been very consistent, you've kept everything the same, and then you've added and taken out the branched chain amino acids. Like something's going on here. I just notice I I don't feel so wiped out, I don't feel so sore from my workouts. But in terms of muscle protein synthesis, you're not gonna get much out of that. In fact it goes the opposite direction. There are only two there were only a couple studies and the first time actually it was demonstrated that you get an increase in protein breakdown was, I believe, in 1995. There's, these two studies were with branched-chain amino acid infusions. So they weren't even oral. Um, and it was showing a, the negative effects. So we've known this for a long time. Somehow, BCA has sort of slipped in, probably because you got all those bits and pieces. It gets broke down pr preferentially if you don't have incoming food, insulin, to inhibit this or branched-chain amino acids or another protein source. Um, it, it sort of slipped into the idea like, yeah, we need the branched-chain amino acids because we don't want those to break down. We don't want to catabolize our skeletal muscle into being like you just take BCAAs. 
And once you start spreading an idea, that idea will spread, especially if it's got an actual physiological effect like it does on muscle soreness. Hmm. But the problem is you haven't got all the tools that you need having got the other EAAs in place. So I found a, um, it's a kind of a, and I didn't have a chance to go and check all of these references to, to double check, but I'll just read this. This is from um, De Souza Santos at Al. Isolated branch chain amino acid intake and muscle protein synthesis in humans, a biochemical review from 2019. And this is very, very interesting. Um, so they there is a study uh, that Bob Wolf had apparently missed in his review, but... Um, so muscle, I'll just read directly from this because it, it's, 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 it speaks right to the point. Muscle protein synthesis in response to isolated intake, 5.6 grams of BCAAs or placebo following resistance physical exercise was recently investi investigated in humans, young fit men. Within four hours, muscle protein synthesis was 22% higher in the treated group. Now remember, that's just protein synthesis. That's not what that's not what what is happening with overall protein breakdown. We have this issue of increasing breakdown, but protein synthesis is 22% higher in the treated group as compared to the placebo group. In spite of statistical significance, this increase was six times lower compared to muscle protein synthesis of similar duration in response to the consumption of whey protein containing similar amounts of branched-chain amino acids and essential amino acids. Hmm. So you compare just the BCAAs with a whole protein source, like whey, with the other essential amino acids, and you're getting six times the increase in protein synthesis. And these are th there are three studies that are cited there. So which would you go with, given the fact we know that basically you can eat almost as much protein as you can get down. It's not going to cause fat gain. It's not as if those calories just like spill over. You would like somehow be risking from, let's say, you know, 50 grams of protein getting 120, 120 calories loaded into the fat cells. It doesn't work that way. So you're getting more protein synthesis and you're avoiding the protein breakdown that comes with just feeding the branch chain amino acids. Hmm. So the branch chains will help with soreness, but that leads us back to another important concept is that uh, you may want the soreness. You may want some of those, some of that breakdown to happen. Hmm. Not everyone uses this terminology, but I hear lots of people now kind of getting on the idea that you know, you've got an optimal amount of training that you want to do, optimal volume, optimal effort. Some people can do 15 sets and leave a few, t a few reps in the tank. Some people can do like, they can only go with seven or eight sets in a week, let's say, and but they just like go bonkers and yeah. they just take every set you know, to failure and maybe add some intensification techniques. So you go beyond that and it's too much. So you may be getting this, this effect on soreness in a scenario where you're taking the branch chain amino acids, just a hypothetical situation, and it's reducing your soreness and you're actually getting a negative protein balance out of the deal because of feeding the branch chain amino acids, turning on the degradation, you're reducing the soreness, which lends you to think, huh, maybe I should just do more. So now you do more training than is your optimal because the BCAAs are having an effect. It's a different mechanism, but it's an effect that is similar to taking a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory or to using 
a mega dose of an antioxidant like vitamin or vitamin C, and those things can reduce muscle growth because they inhibit the the whole inflammatory response or aspects of the signaling that comes in, literally to tell your muscle cells there's a disturbance in our in our homeostasis. We've got some inflammation that's going on. There's a need to remodel, and in, in particular to remodel, hopefully, with, with muscle growth in mind. So you start inhibiting the, the, the aspects of the, the stimulus from the training session that you've had. You're going to end up inhibiting what you're actually trying to evoke. You mm. want the stress. You don't necessarily want to have zero soreness necessarily. Mm. So that's a potential issue depending on the person. It's a lot of variability there, but basically, if you look at the data, the branched-chain amino acids are super important. There's no doubt. If you just, if you even had to say, like, which are the most important of the EAAs, you'd say the BCAAs. And then the logical leap that you take is like, I'm going to just use the BCAAs. You know, maybe I want to cut the, you know, 15 calories that I get from taking a, a full dose of EAAs. No, you just take the BCAAs, and now you've gone too far. Because your system isn't the system isn't set up to negotiate just that input because it doesn't have all the building materials required for the building, but that sort of signals the building and it turns on breakdown in a way that would normally be helpful. If you if you want to have an accumulation of muscle protein, you're going to have to have some breakdown as well as some uh, some growth. There's actually a, an animal model, a transgenic mouse model, I believe, where they've um, I think it may be that dehydrogenase enzyme that I mentioned, they've eliminated that. So basically that the animal has very little muscle breakdown and you don't get muscle growth in response to these animal models of, of muscle growth. Hmm. You just, you need to have some breakdown. So the idea that if you could just, you know, blunt everything by, you know, with having no breakdown from a training bout doesn't make any sense. You've got, you're remodeling the whole thing. You're trying to build a bigger house. You need to knock down some walls so you can make bigger rooms, more myofibrils, larger myofibrils, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the breakdown needs to happen there. Anyway, that's that's my take on the BCAs. It's it's an interesting, and they'll still sell because yeah. they do have that effect. And, you know, and the thing is, it's also a smart list. I mean, it's, I'm not trying to like, you know, speak disparagingly about someone who uses BCAAs. If they're if it's working for you, it may be just fine. It may be in a scenario like these these studies are where someone has fasted, haven't any food for ten or twelve hours, and then they just use the BCAAs. Yeah. It may be that someone has eaten a meal before they train. A lot of people like they won't even bother going to train if they haven't had two or three meals. They got those other amino acids in the bloodstream already. So then they take the BCAAs, they're taking leucine. There may be an effect there that they're having just in that they're, they're, they're turn, sort of re-triggering, and I haven't seen this study directly, but they may be re-triggering the protein synthesis, and they don't have any limitations in terms of the EAAs because they've got a, a meal with a complete protein in it that they took in hour, hour and a half before training, so there's no problem. And now they've got a placebo effect. They're taking their – they've got their – pre-workout ritual, and part of that is BCAs. They've been taken, you know, since day one or since when they first won their first show or got their pro card or whatever it may be. Yeah. And, hell, yeah, do that, you know, because that, that system works, you know. that's And that, that may be very different than what's being 
tested in some of these studies where they've got very particular conditions that are set up just to evaluate the scenario where you're fasted, post-absorptive, you take in chest BCAAs compared to a whole protein source. So can't just take the science and say, oh, that applies to me because it very often might not. A lot of things that are done in, in studies are just proof of concept, hmm. which is what these studies basically are. Very few, some people might get up and just take BCAs when they do morning cardio. Um, but many people who take it as, you know, pre-workout or they, they bolster their, um, their intra-workout with BCAs, maybe no issue because yeah. it's very different, very different scenario than what, what's going on in these studies I mentioned. Yeah. So I remember my first contest, I, um, I, I used BCAAs with my AM fasted cardio and I mm -hmm. believe I was taking like 10 grams. And then as the prep went on, I, my, I was running out. So I started cutting it down to five. And uh, <laughs> I, I didn't really time it out too well because then I ended up just plain, out, plain old running out. So I went from 10 to five to none with my fasted AM cardio. And I saw um, a noticeable difference in how fast yeah. I made progress. And of course, the diet had changed along the way too. So it's not like that was the only right. you know variable to the to the the mix. But I started seeing myself getting leaner faster as I took less, and I saw myself actually like really getting lean fast when I had taken them out altogether. Uh, I, I definitely, for me at least, I noticed a difference, and so I'm kind of hesitant because I I used to think to myself like, oh, they're BCAAs. They they it's almost like. Um, they, uh, they, 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 they didn't have calories. They didn't have to worry about it. I, I saw it as being this thing that wouldn't have any impact, but then I discovered that it, it, I think that it, it may have had an impact. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. I mean, you're right. As far as calories go, that's, that's nothing calorically. Yeah. Yeah. It's 40 calories, you know, when you had, when you had your full dose, um, yeah, there may have been a little insulin release, but then we're going back to this, you know, the insulin theory of, you know, fat loss, which, you know, that's a whole other, whole other can of worms. Um, hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, the the thing is, like, to some degree, you've if you've got something that's working, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. You know, and if sometimes you just have to start when someone's starting out, you just do what everyone else is doing. Right. You know, you look at people that are that are successful, and then you try to mimic those things, or parrot those things, or or simulate what they're doing as best you can. It makes perfect sense. Um, the real question is whether you should use EAAs or BCAAs. Yeah. And you know, in a scenario where you've got nothing, or you've got those two choices, I go with EAAs. Yeah. If you have the choice of the whole protein, go with whey. You know, go with the pro whole protein source that's you know, that's complete, that's got, you know, the high biological value or, um, you know, that's a, a, an animal source of protein, basically. I've and the thing is, if you look... Oh, good. Sorry. Go I, I'm sorry. I, I a little timing issue with our uh, mics. I, I, oh, yeah. Yeah. Apologize. Sorry. Go ahead. It's, uh, it's just if you, if you break down the cost of the EAs that you get in way versus just EAs, you're, you're getting basically... The same. It's usually a bit cheaper. Last time I did it, if you go to True Nutrition, for instance, you can you can check that out. Um, so you're paid for the isolation of the EAAs, and that's like, but you're not getting the other 
amino acids. So in a, in, a, in a source, like I mentioned before, in a situation where you're fasted, um, you want those other amino acids. Hmm. It won't necessarily make, it's not going to make or break you, but imagine if all you did was take EAAs, you'd have none of those other non-essential amino acids coming in. Hmm. They're going to have to come from somewhere else in order to synthesize any protein that you might be turning on the synthesis for with those EAAs. Mm. It's going to come from your own body proteins. Mm. Eventually, you're going to you're going to end up in a protein deficit, so to speak, because you don't have those non-essentials. You need calories, of course, to make all this happen. We talked about that a couple podcasts ago. But so you'd want the whole protein. There's really, I mean, there's very little scenario. I remember John, for instance, one time when he was he was really he was pushing down. He's trying some different things out, and he pushed down for the last time. I think the light heavy. Okay. And um, except for maybe when he did the Arnold Classic and looked just like outrageous, yeah. where he really had to push. Um, he may have done this a little bit then too. You know, people go to just protein only. You know, protein and veggies. You know, for long periods of time, he was he was doing like amino, essential amino acids in between his meals, partly just to like have something to do. I think partly to to try to try to at least keep protein synthesis afloat to some degree. Yeah. And um, and even like just to cut cut down on calories, just like just a little bit, just a wee tad. I don't know that you know he probably would say, "Hey, I probably make a difference," but you know sometimes just having the right. I think there's something to say for picking a strategy, feeling like you're in the driver's seat, doing something, even if it may or may not make a difference, because then you have a sense of control as mm-hmm. opposed to. And you've got all your I's are dotted, your T's are crossed. I am running this ship right where I want it to go, yeah. to the finish line. As opposed to, imagine if you had no idea, like you're working with a coach, or you know, all your sources of supplements and foods are just completely topsy turvy. You have no you have no control whatsoever, and you sense that. Oh shit, you'd be stressed all to high heaven. Yeah, that's not a good place to be. Cortisol is not a helpful thing in exorbitant amounts when you're when you're dieting down. So sometimes it's better to have maybe you know a plan that isn't uh, physiologically perfect, so to speak, but one that you believe in that reduces your stress levels, that creates those placebo effects, gets you like like I'm going to go into my workout. I know I'm armored by this supplement, that supplement. This strategy, that strategy. I'm doing all the things to make sure I can train as hard as I want to, and I'm not going to like bury myself and undo. You know, I'm not going to drop two pounds of muscle during this workout where I'm on really low calories because I'm doing all these other things. So it gives you it gives you a sense of security, so to speak, to attack your workouts in the way you need to and do the other things that you need to to make sure you're you're um, you're as successful as possible. So. There's something to say for like doing what works and doing what you believe in, even though you know it may uh, it may not be the smartest thing from a physiological or scientific sense necessarily. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, and, and I know we talked about oh. this before. If you were to use EAA, um, is, is there a a certain amount that you would say would be a, a We'll say an, enough, but maybe not too much. Because I've, I've experimented with everything from 5 to 25 grams of EAA. And I know that like going up to 25 was probably a little bit on the, the high end. <laughs> yeah. You can get an effect just from 6 grams. Okay. Some of the early studies were just using 6 grams. I think if you take, 
to go and check the numbers. I think if you looked at like what you might get, it's, it's interesting. If you look at just the muscle protein synthesis, you know, 40, maybe for a big person, 50, 60 grams of whole protein pretty much has topped you out. You're not going to get anything, anything more. Um, more higher doses of protein. There's even, uh, it's actually a Bob Wolf who um, wrote the nice review from a few years ago on, on EAAs that I referred to earlier. Uh, he's got some interesting data, like on whole body protein synthesis. That's, that kind of shows like there doesn't seem to be any whole, whole plateau there. Ah. Like you could just take in, take in more protein. Of course, that's not true. You know, you can look at that sort of metabolic data. Here's the thing that gets people. You look at some of the whole body metabolic data on like increasing protein doses and what happens with protein balance. And it kind of suggests like, you know, the sky's the limit or something like that. Yeah. But we know that's not the case. You look at Jose Antonio's stuff with, you know, 3.6 and, you know, like massive amounts of protein. And the one study, it was like a, a thousand calories almost on average for an average size bodybuilder per day of extra protein. And there was no muscle growth. Uh, now they did, they did, and there's no change in body composition compared to the other group. Yeah. And, but they, so it didn't add, add fat, but it didn't enhance muscle growth in any way. Yeah. They didn't combine that with massive amounts of food. There's a di- there might be a different scenario where you took someone and put made them put them into a, a massive caloric um, surplus, such that they may be getting a good amount of fat. So take that same study and then and then add another thousand calories of carbs on top of that, or a mixed macro diet. So they're put them at like instead of three thousand calories, put them at four and a half thousand, five thousand. You probably get some fat spilling over, but you have plenty of energy around to fuel the muscle growth. Haven't seen that study done. That's in, is it 101, 102, episode 101, 102, we talked about nutrition. Yeah, yeah. And some of the the massive feedings. Like, those are the studies that you have a hard time getting people to commit to as subjects because you've got to eat so much food. Those are hard. Those those have um, an adherence issue Mm. because those are brutal. You know, just take some pills or drink a supplement and, you know, maybe you can tell it's there. Hopefully they've, they've hidden it so there's no placebo effect. But take a, take a study like, okay, we're going we're gonna to overfeed you consistently for the next three months. And, you know, you get dropout from gastric distress, you know, all the things that happen when pe- people just don't want to bulk. Bulking is very, very difficult. Yeah. So you do like a true bulking study and you do this in a scientific context. Where you like, tip like the way that it's done. Obviously, with coaching, most of the time, not not everyone always does this. Is that you add calories given the feedback you're getting? How is the person's strength changing? How you know you don't want to gain like three pounds every week. You know that that's too fast. Yeah. You know, in almost every situation, unless you're like you know you're just putting on water like in a few days after a show or something. So you titrate things. You you adjust things you know, in, in a very individualistic manner. Well, if you're going to test a condition in an overfeeding study like that, you have to, you have to, the, the question is, if we take this very specific approach and apply it to our sample from this population of highly resistance trained bodybuilders, what happens? And can we say that if we add 2,000 calories to their caloric balanced diet, 
that they get X amount of muscle growth when we've also added an extra 100 grams of protein, something like that. Yeah. So everyone has to do that. Now, for some people, they might grow like weeds. They got good genetics um, based on, you know, how far they are along their law of diminishing returns spectrum. Like, have they grown, you know, only 10 pounds since they started and they have a lot more left in the tank because they, you know, really haven't pushed the food before. Maybe there's someone who's already put on 70 pounds, you know, and for them to get two pounds of muscle is like just a miracle. Yeah. So you end up with the scenario like the like the studies that we've talked about here. It's also in one of those 101, 102, 103, where they the first study, they looked at frequency of training, and they saw it was no difference. It didn't matter two, three, or five times a week. And they looked at the individuals, mm-hmm. and some people did better with higher. Some people did, did better with lower. Some people just grew like weeds. Some people didn't grow with either. So, so you're answering a different question with those group studies as opposed to what might work best for the individual. Hmm. So so anyway, as far as the as far as the protein goes, I think I lost my train of thought. I jumped too many times from it's the right. original question. I'm just taking yeah, it, taking good. it all in. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, oh, as far as yeah, your question, as far as essential amino acids, once you get to maybe like you know ten or fifteen, that's what you're going to get in a protein dose of you know maybe. 60, something like that, 50 to 70, you're already at a protein dose that's that's plenty to maximally turn on protein synthesis. I gotcha. Where we went awry, I was talking about this whole body protein synthesis idea and the limitations of the studies, because there aren't, there aren't studies that just show like, what if we just massively bulk someone with lots of protein <laughs> yeah. while they're training? You know, there's, a, there's the studies that we talked about, but that's just about it. There's like three. Okay. So the essential amino acids um, in a dose of you know, let's say 15 grams, um, that's plenty to turn on protein synthesis in almost all situations. If um, protein breakdown is very rarely measured, it's um, methodologically very difficult to do. So that's kind of a, the assumption is is that it, it always is um, about one third of the protein synthesis, I believe. I believe that's the number that I've read, is that they sort of, based on like two or three studies, that they just sort of presume that's the case. They sort, they sort of presume that's a constant, mm-hmm. but that's not been in, in skeletal muscle, but that's not been um, assessed regularly across a range of, of protein intakes to know what the true protein balance is. There's just kind of an underlying assumption. So it's hard to say whether, you know, if you took in 25 grams of essential amino acids, if that would have a differential effect versus just six I got on protein balance. That's what matters. You've got breakdown and, ba- and synthesis. So whether you're in a positive scenario, positive protein balance, or a negative protein balance is what matters. So 25 might be, you know, that's good insurance. You know, there yeah. might be an effect on breakdown. I don't know. Um, so that's why bodybuilders do this. They, you know, they, they, they figure out, you know, what might make sense, and then they just add a little insurance. They take a little bit extra. Of course. Which, in terms of protein with healthy kidneys, in this scenario, the calories are minimal. If you go from, let's say, 10 to 20, that's an extra 40 calories, something like that. You know, it's not a big deal. It's probably not going to hurt you, except maybe in your wallet. So it's not a bad a bad thought, but the data aren't there that, that I'm aware of to dig in and say, 
Oh yeah, like when you like you don't get start having a massive effect on limiting protein breakdown until you get you know up to twenty grams of essential yeah. amino acids. Okay. And the thing is, you you don't necessarily want that because you want some protein breakdown and some stimulus for protein turnover, so that you can continue to have the remodeling from your workout. The difference would be off season mm. versus trying to limit that breakdown pre contest. So, um, I still think that the protein, and we know this pretty solidly, when you get whole protein, when someone's dieting down, they're in a caloric deficit. There's even a, a pretty cool, it's a short study from Stu Phillips' group where, gosh, it was with women, and they, it was only like four weeks maybe, but they loaded them with, loaded them up with like, oh, God, was it three, three or four grams per kilogram? So... Higher than that, like 2.2 is sort of the upper end of the range that comes from various ways of looking at what you need when you're training in terms of protein. But they were dieting down. They're in a deficit. And these women actually grew muscle while they're in a really severe – they're like 800 calories a day. It was like – No kidding. It was, it, was, it was really rough. I could look it up real quick. But, um, yeah, it was a rough caloric deficit. So um, the whole protein is still a, a better choice. You know, unless you get like, unless you feel like, you know, you're, you've got, you're being blessed by a unicorn when you use essential amino acids as opposed to whole protein, um, then yeah, the whole protein is the way to go. It's just what your, what your body's set up to, to metabolize. It's what's, it's what, you know, the system needs in terms of all this amino acids. There's just, there's very little reason. And this goes for also like studies, and this is in my book and on the article on John's site, to just to like try to. Soup up your protein source with with more protein with sorry with more essential amino acids. Hmm. If it's a, if you're if you're taking in a vegetarian protein, that makes sense. But you've got a whole protein, a complete protein, um, with good amino acid score, then protein digestibility corrected amino acid score. Let's say that's what has for a long time been sort of the main way of evaluating protein value. If you got a, a good score, you've got a good animal source of protein, then you're not really doing anything. You take in enough. Yeah. You're not really doing anything. You're kind of like um, you're splitting hairs. You're like, what if I took in 15 grams of whey protein and then I added like six grams of EAAs? Like, hey, I was thinking it already. <laughs> I know, I know, I know this because I would think that too. Like, you know, like what are the advantages? Well, it's the advantages could be. A placebo effect is like, ooh, I got to be the evil scientist. Like, I yeah. put together this perfect pre-con or pre-training ritual of this, 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 this. I got a little bit of this. I got yeah. every supplement known to mankind. I, I had a, a someone message me. I feel for him too. Like it's been a few weeks ago now, and, and uh, he's like, I, I need help. Like it was almost like you know, uh, he stood up at the meeting. He said, you know, my name's John, and I'm a bodybuilding supplement addict. You know, yeah. Yeah, because it's, it's like it's, I've got more. I'm, I'm, I'm reading like you know you read like examine.com, phenomenal source. Yeah, you know there's literature suggests all sorts of things can be effective. So you start like I'll add that, you know, and I'll add that, and I'll add that, and next thing you know, like holy shit, I'm spending as much money on supplements as I have on food, and both of those exceed my rent. Like what's going on here? I've gone overboard. Yeah. So I mentioned this in in regards to. Um, uh, just supplements in general, like like heart care supplements, those sorts of things. 
is that if you look at like so let's take I'm going to take um, berberine and curcumin and resveratrol and you start adding all those eventually you end up having overlapping mechanisms so it kind of applies here with a whole protein source and essential amino acids if I take in whey protein which has essential amino acids in it and then I take in essential amino acids to get essential amino acids it's like why don't you just take in more whey protein or just use the right amount of whey protein yeah well because it feels cooler to use a bunch of little things, but you do got to run and you got to watch out for the fact that I'm just, you know, it, it, it's like I'm, I'm using a nail and I'm using a screw, you know, and yeah. they're both doing the same thing. It's like, do you really need them both? No, they're basically holding the board down. You don't need to use both types Fair enough. of implements. Fair enough. Yeah. All right. Listen, so uh, I know you had a couple other things here um, that you'd picked out from the uh the previous episode um we one of them was elevating the bed during peak week i know we talked about that not too not too long ago head down tilt is there anything you wanted to to brush up on with that one i couldn't remember because i talk about these things you know we did yeah we talked about it not too long ago we did a whole segment on it um what about uh you know what i've got one that i didn't uh i didn't mention to you um it related to left ventricular, excuse me, left ventricle hypertrophy, and it was from one of our Patreon guys. I'm not sure if you have anything on this, and if not, we could always come back to it. Um, but basically, uh, he had found he had some mild left ventricular hypertrophy, six four two sixty. So he's a big dude, and he's been doing bodybuilding uh, for the last twenty years. The doctors told him that it was minor. And that it would be expected for someone his size. Uh, blood pressure while on cycle has never gotten extremely high, 140 over 90 in the past. Um, but now uh, he's been using um, a little bit of Cialis at times, five milligrams, and he got his doctor to put him on Telesmartin. Um, and he said that his blood pressure is 105 over 70. And he adds, uh, at what reading? should someone cut back on blood pressure medication assuming the person feels good and doesn't get dizzy obviously a question for his doctor um true yeah yeah so it's the interesting thing is that and i don't see this mentioned too often so i guess it bears repeating just like he mentioned he's got it like a bigger person should have a higher blood pressure that's typically what you'd see. If you look at, like, you know, the, you can imagine the blood pressure. There's some variability across species, but the blood pressure in a in an elephant is going to be higher than the blood pressure in a mouse. Yeah. Okay. Right. You're yeah. you're going to expect those things, you know. So there's some scaling with body size. It probably scales with body surface area or something like that. Um, but in terms of the tissue, what we're concerned about, well, a couple things. You got your kidneys. And then you've got also the endothelium as far as cardiovascular disease and those sorts of things that are associated with having high blood pressure. Um, you don't want to be if you if you're a larger person, it doesn't mean like I use a use a truck example. You know, you get an F one fifty and get an F three fifty, and they're going to have different size leaf springs and different size suspension on them because it's a bigger truck. If you're a human that's a hundred pounds versus a human that's three hundred pounds. It doesn't mean you get kidneys that are equipped differently, like the, the two different trucks have different size leaf springs. 
Yeah. You still get a pair of kidneys. There's going to be bigger kidneys. But the working parts in those kidneys, the glomeruli, are going to be the same. And the the filtration in the glomeruli is going to be the, be the same. The Bowman's capsules, everything else that goes into the um, how the kidney does its job is going to be the same. And the endothelium that you have... Generally speaking, everyone has you know variabilities because of their genetics, but you still got human endothelial um, tissue in your vasculature, and so one of the issues is that you can just stress your kidneys out with the high blood pressure. Kidneys are, are they're sensing this and producing renin, and they're part of the renin-angiotensin system, aldosterone system, and also <clears throat> if you're someone who's got high blood pressure and you've got shitty blood lipids. Part of the mechanism whereby you're going to get a clot or atherosclerosis is that you've got more blood pressure driving the blood through the system, and you've got these lipids. If you've got a poor lipid profile, you've got little, um, you call them, like you use the term micro tears. Um, you've got uh, an inflammatory process that can happen there because you, the blood's constantly rushing through the vasculature. And the cells and all the components, the proteins, everything of the of inside the blood is banging up against the inner tube, that vascular endothelium within the blood cell. And you can get plaque, plaque, plaque streaks laid down there, which can then um, basically become sort of kind of a, a scar, so to speak. You get infiltration with macrophage. You can find some really awesome um, figures online demonstrating the whole mechanisms that are involved there. But the greater the pressure, you can imagine, which, which hose is going to have the greatest wear and tear in it? Imagine this hose is it's pumping concrete, let's say. So there's, you know, it's, it's pretty rough what's coming through the hose. A hose that um, is under high pressure or a hose that's, you know, just sort of like pumping out an easy, an easy rate. Yeah. Yeah. So the higher the pressure, the, the, the greater the stresses, the physical stresses. And in that environment of inflammation being generally inflamed, and the wrong kind of lipids in terms of those those fatty streaks being laid down, you end up with a scenario where you can have a clot formation or you have advanced cardiovascular disease and you get, um, you know, you, there's actually um, the sort of the craziest pictures are from studies where they, they've taken, um, they use macaques, they use other primates, not humans, and they give them an atherogenic diet. You can look up like macaque or, you know, um, simian and then atherogenic and you see like, Literally, like you know, the, the the controls have a have like they look at one of the uh, arterial vessels, the the coronary vessels, and the controls look like this, and then and maybe there's like a, maybe a little thin streak, like nothing there as far as atherogenesis, and then the ones in the atherogenic diet, like you know, they eat basically what humans who dine on McDonald's and and typical you know standard American diet. There's like a little itty bitty hole for the blood to go through. Mm, yeah, they've got yeah they they've got some major occlusion there. Um, that's where you get, you know, ischemia in your, in your heart. So anyway, he's a big guy. He should have higher blood pressure because he's just because he's bigger, but that doesn't, um, necessarily mean that it's okay to have a higher blood pressure because he's still got the same vascular endothelium that other humans would have. Sure. So lower is going to be general and the, the epidemiological data tell us this without a doubt. It's so variable, though, as to whether someone's going to end up getting atherosclerosis or be at a risk for a heart attack based on their blood lip and those sorts of things. You don't. I've looked for this, and I almost. I'm not a, going to conspiracy theory here, but I've looked so many times to try to figure out 
statistically, and maybe someone out there has, has found this, or there's a study that I've just missed, or a review or something, of if you look at like your major factors for cardiovascular disease, so being overweight, high blood pressure, poor lipids, family history, what have you, family history is going to take up a big part of this. But if you eliminate that and look at the things you can, your controllable factors, as they're known, what percentage of the variability in risk for heart attack or um, a cerebrovascular event, a stroke, deep vein thrombosis, what have you, um, what percentage is accounted for by those factors? So can we say, you know, if we know these things, we can predict 50% of your of, of the variability in risk among individuals? I think it's a relatively small amount. There's a lot of it we just, just happens, and we're not quite sure why mm. um, necessarily. It's probably genetic. You know, if you're crappy, crappy diet, like there's things you can change, and the extent to which you can change those varies. Kind of like, you know, why do some people grow so well as bodybuilders? Well, they've got good genetics for it. There's a bunch of things go into it. You can take any two clients and put them on the same diet, and, like, you can get highly variable results from individuals. So back to his question then. Um, the main thing with low blood pressure uh, is going to be your risk of passing out. Yeah. As far as I know, you know, I'd have to look this up, but as far as I know, there's – you know, as long as your your blood pressure is in a in a physiologically functional range, I'm think, speaking now not as a as an, a doctor, but as a physiologist. As long as you're in a physiologically functional range, then meaning you don't like like I had a I had a girlfriend years ago who used to have low blood pressure. She'd have she'd have low low blood sugar too, mm. but it, everything was kind of low. And probably because she like work all day long and not drink anything, so she get dehydrated because she didn't want to go and pee because she was so busy, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know the situation like she, I think she was she was working at one point behind a desk and she literally was the only customer service person there. Yeah. So she literally she, as my as my mentor Dr. Dudley would say, sometimes I'm, I walk past him in the hall, you know, we're both kicking ass, he's doing his thing and I'm doing my thing, and I'm like, I say, what's happening, Doc? He's like, too busy to take a shit. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it because he'd say that no matter when, you know. And sometimes there'd be like, you know, students walk by who were on tour, you know, and they'd yeah. see like, I'd say, what's, and that sometimes I said, how are you, Dr. Dudley? And he'd say, do this, take shit. And everyone said, oh, that's Dr. Dudley. He could be my teacher. And you could see some of the students be like, like, oh, fuck yeah, I'm going here. I like these people. Yeah. And yeah. some of the parents were like, we're paying for this. <laughs> Thank God this is in-state tuition, you know. <laughs> anyway, um, so uh, as far as low blood pressure goes, you know, yeah. that's that's probably, you know, my blood pressure tends to be low. Does it? It tends to run like, yeah, like 100 over 60. Okay. Um, you know, something like that. Like, actually, even it's even been as low as like 80 or – I remember once I took it, and I, this was when I was – I was probably at least 240, 250. Yeah. And I was measuring my own blood pressure, which I've done for years, but um, I was uh, preparing for a lab, exercise phys lab, and measuring my own blood pressure while I was riding an exercise bike at rest. And, and I kept on measuring it. And I'm like, man, my blood, this damn cuff is broken. Is this the right size? Like, this is the big cuff. I need this cuff. And my blood pressure was like 70 over 45 or something. Holy like that. crap. 
Wow. And I was I I wasn't like you know feeling like feeling uh, woozy or dizzy or anything like that. So he's yeah. probably probably okay. But check with his doctor. That's he mentioned um, Cialis. Um, and uh, like Viagra, one of the things you know with Viagra, why it, uh, is it actually you know causes that's one of the side effects, particular is low blood pressure, people like you know starting to faint, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, during, I mean, the only thing I can think of other other to sort of throw out is that if you, I haven't seen this as far as resistance exercise goes, but there are data showing that overall being exercise trained, doing endurance training reduces your risk of cardiovascular disease. Obviously, you know, most of the risk comes from just getting out of the couch potato category, hmm. you know, and just being, you know, recreationally active and not being someone who just, you know, Netflix and chill with, you know, takeout or whatever all the time. Yeah. Uh, but once you're, once you're exercising, that's a stress on your cardiovascular system. Okay. And there is an increased risk of, um, I saw, saw this depicted once in a, years ago in a, um, in a paper, and like the, the throughout the day, the risk. Let's say the risk is cut in half on average. You know, for um, someone who's cardiovascular, who's, who's an endurance exerciser, you know, a runner. So they might have it's on on average throughout a twenty four hour period. They might have they might average at like forty or forty five percent the risk, except when they exercise, their risk goes up. Mm. You know, to above the average, and then it drops back down. But the overall twenty-four hour average is less. Okay. So that's good. If you do, if you do like leg press, um, and do a Valsalva, they've measured blood pressure to like blood pressures at like four hundred over two hundred. Holy shit! At the femoral artery, yeah, which is not typically where you measure it, but it's you know it's represented what you get to break the artery, relatively speaking. So. Yeah, you get super high blood pressure. So there's a risk, you know, of a of a cardiovascular incident, you know, by um, by exercise training. So he's taking Cialis to bring it down. I don't know, you know, I have to see like mechanistically. I don't. That may bring his blood pressure down like to some degree during those lower blood pressure points during his workout, like between his sets. Yeah. Um, but but during this all-out go-for-broke set, you know, like a deadlift or a bent-over-row, and that's when you're doing the Valsalva. If you're breathing, it, it helps substantially, but he may not, like the Cialis may not do, be doing anything in, in that regard, you know, okay. during those times. I haven't seen that study directly because it's sort of like, um, it, it's analogous to, uh, you know, taking in carbohydrates. This isn't, this isn't, there's a, whole other story to this but you can take in carbohydrates while you're exercising and 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 there's some data that suggests if you're doing endurance exercise you know it may slow the rate of glycogen use but if you're doing all-out exercise like that's go for broke you're just calling upon that glycogen because the glycogen's there it doesn't matter how much glucose you have in the system they're just you're going to use the glycogen at the same rate so if you're if you're doing like a leg press or a squat and you're you know and you're holding your breath and, you've, and you're just going after it, your blood pressure is going to be high. Maybe it's instead of 400 over 200, it's 390 over 185 or something like that. But it's still sky high. The Cialis is probably making no difference potentially during those high-risk moments of during the exercise session. I don't okay. know. I'm guessing it probably is completely overridden by 
the fact that you got all that weight on your back or you're moving all that weight around and you're holding your breath doing a Valsalva. So he might, yeah. if he tends to Valsalva, um, uh, you know, he might be, be best, you know, pay attention just to that. It's, you know, good breathing as far as bringing your, your blood pressure down as opposed to, you know, taking a, a drug like, like Cialis or Viagra. Yeah. So, he, he also, he was using a blood pressure medication too. Yeah, Thomas Harton. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's, that's a, a strategy. Obviously, that's Victor Black has made that very, very big, very, very well known. You can, you, know, you can use ARB blockers as well. Okay. Um, I don't know if that's going to do anything during the during the workout. Yeah. If it that's one of the that's a side effect too of your blood pressure going too low on those. Hmm. So you have to look into that. But as far as he's as far as he's um as being you know physio as long as he's in physiological range and he's not not blacking out you know talk to his or getting dizzy or what have you I haven't talked to his doctor about that because okay. he did he didn't mention what he is on or off the telmasartan did he. Uh, you know what he might have let me see here really quick because uh, it was a long message I think he did uh, no no oh wait he says um, usually yeah. he was 140 over 90 um, okay yeah blood pressure on cycle was he, he said yeah he said my blood pressure went on cycle doesn't get extremely high usually 140 over 90 and then he said I've convinced my doctor to put him on the medication uh, to help uh, hopefully reverse left ventricle hypertrophy. That's I, that's what his overall goal is here. He said to possibly yeah. get that to change. So I think they made a good decision based on the blood pressure. If he's got, I he did he he probably had an echocardiogram done. So to to know, I don't think he mentioned that at all. But um, so you know, you look you guys look at his his um, uh, ejection fraction from the echo. Yeah. See if there's any issues there. You know, that would be the kind of the, the problem you're running into. It's normal to get, you've got an overload stress on the heart from training, from holding your breath, and just the fact that your blood pressure is going to go up. It's totally normal to have some thickening of the left ventricle from resistance training. That's a normal adaptation to the deal. Depends on how much it is and what you see with someone who's got um, a pathological thickening there is that they've had the chronic blood pressure elevation and they've got poor ejection fraction so you've got a pathological functioning of the heart in conjunction with the thickening as opposed to a positive adaptation um, that's just helping the means his heart is, has adapted somewhat to the, the high, high um, blood pressure stresses of the training and it's it's normal and as far as that goes you know, as far as I know, there's nothing, there's no adverse consequences to that normal amount. But that's kind of the thing is like you need to look at the echo and um, echoes can end up being, you can get different numbers. You know, mm. there's different ways to estimate the ejection fraction based on the images. And I can't remember the details there, but that can give you different values. I've um, had clients corresponded with people, talked with John about this a good bit, you know, back when he had his heart attack and trying to figure out, like, you know, what's going on, because, like, he had some, and I can't remember the information there, but he had some times then when, you know, he's like, what's going on, you know, with his ejection fraction and trying to tease that all out, and he was, like, asymptomatic. He had no issues whatsoever. He was, he was like, he's like, I've got clearance now. Everything looks good. Things are getting better, and he was going to the gym and, and just burying people, <laughs> you know. He wouldn't say it that way. He was like, yeah, we trained, man, and, like, I'm just going. Like, he's just kicking ass, yeah. you know, so. Yeah. 
so yeah, there's there's so many details there that I can't even like. Sure. I can't even take much of a stab at without having you know an echo to look at or something, and I can't interpret those things legal anyhow. But absolutely, yeah. it sounds like his his doctors, you know, they're on a getting the 140 is sort of the break off point. You know, the 140 over 100, 140 over 90, like he's sort of at the you know borderline, even beyond borderline hypertension, where he was, and now he's back down to you know 110 over whatever he said. So that's that's good. That sounds good to me, man. I'd be happy with that personally. What about uh, uh, Nick Weary's with us? A competitive eater, Nick Weary, one of the best in the world. He's he he was asking he about uh, Ar- Arjuna. <clears throat> he said, is, "Is that possibly a nice Arjuna? Arjuna is that? I, yeah. I, I don't know this supplement, but he said, I think that it's been shown to increase uh, left ventricle ejection fraction. Yeah, it's that's a Himalaya Wellness, mm. um, Himalaya Herbal." Supplements it's called, known as Heart Care, or Arjuna is in Heart Care. Um, yeah, I was actually—it's funny enough because I have some in the other room, and I was—I thought about putting a post up. I mentioned okay. that to somebody. I can't remember when. Yeah. It all kind of the consults and everything all kind of blends together, but that's a great—that's—that's in my book actually. If you get, if you buy the um, the PDF or the, or you can just go to the references in the back, dig through them. There you yeah. go. Yeah, that's a great supplement. It's kind of they've got like multiple versions of their website, but you can find the scientific documentation there. Huh, okay. um, it's it's a really good supplement. Yeah, Cart, um, Cardiotone, Cardiotone. Oh, yeah, is one yeah. That a lot of people use for blood pressure. That seems to work pretty well. Yeah, it's been around for forever. Um, so as far as Arjuna uh, has some effects on lipoproteins too, so it's a good, it's a good, very good supplement. Hmm. Um, for heart yeah. remodeling, um, I've heard uh, from Dante that ubiquinol or coenzyme Q10 could be really beneficial. Um, I started experimenting with it and I started running it at what I think is kind of a higher dose because I've seen people using it like 100 to 200 milligrams up. They say up to six for some things. And I started about a month ago this experiment with 400 milligrams of ubiquinol. And as far as like long COVID symptoms, I feel like it's actually been helping me about a month in now. Like that and the um, injectable L-carnitine are like the two, I, out of all the supplements I've been experimenting with this past mm-hmm. year, I feel like those two so far have been really helpful. And then there's another, um, what is it? He suggested it, it was a stronger form of uh, curcumin. Strong, better than super bio, I guess. Starts with an M. Oh, um, uh, yeah. But anyway, what I, I've got a consumer article. Yeah, I've got it. I've got that on order. So that should be here in the next couple of days. I'm going to try to ramp that up too and throw that into the mix. Yeah. See what I get out of it. Yeah. I just got a question. Um, actually just an email question. People find me all sorts of ways. They send me questions and I have, you know, multiple correspondences going up about CoQ10 because it's a free, because it's a, an antioxidant but it's also in the mitochondrial chain. So, um, yeah, it has sort of multiple functions. And the thing is, with in your situation, Scott, um, the thing I've, you know, we talked about or went back and forth is that, you know, does this work like cysteine or vitamin E Mariva. or vitamin C? What's that? that? Was it. Mariva, that was it. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, that's the name of it, yep. Um, 
and yeah, it, it has going to have free radical quenching um, actions, and you can run into that situation where you sort of limit your the stress that you're trying to evoke with training by using CoQ10. But it's all a matter of how much it's and to what rate it's getting used up. Mm. So you've got this situation. We know if you're looking at like D-dimer and um, you know things that are involved with inflammation and clotting and like this scenario with your long COVID, like people are just untangling that. We don't know what the hell's going on there necessarily. Yeah. So yeah. So you you may have an elevated need for um, quenching free radicals. Your antioxidant status may be categorically different. I, th- hmm. I think it is like just, just I mean, just the things that we've talked about, like that, you know, the the relative ease or difficulty with which you go through your average day, yeah, is substantially higher than it was before this happened. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. so like all sorts of things, and I don't know how much you've shared on the podcast, but it's just a imagine bit. someone, yeah. Because um, you ain't a complainer, that's, that's for sure. But it's like imagine like if everything like all of a sudden you got a hundred pound you know weighted vest on you, you know, and oh, yeah. you have to run everywhere, you know, instead of walk. Like you and and you and you recognize that that's there, you know. It's like it's like I kind of go to the grocery store. Like it's going to be like you're in your you know you're before like the, oh the the light at the end of the tunnel is the contest. I'm almost there. You're in like that three week out period where you're totally dieted down, but you're not close enough to the contest that you're getting excited. And, like, everything is just, like, monumental. It's like, I got to get up and go to the bathroom. Oh, my God. I don't know if I want to do it. You know, it's hard. That's stressful. Yeah. Everything's stressful. So you may have a higher higher need for um, something like CoQ10, you know, in your case, especially because of its its roles in, in energy transfer. And the heart is... The heart is just such an energy badass. It goes all the time. It's constantly active, yeah. you know, until, until the end, you know. Yeah. And it's it is a it is an oxidative machine. It can take whatever you feed it. Like they do. Like one way that's the heart is studied is um, with an isolated heart model where they uh, they take the heart out like a rat. You can use different animals. A rat is what I've seen done, and they take the heart out and. You can feed it like um, an artificial blood, basically, and you can give it glucose, you can give it lactate, you can give it free fatty acids, give it ketones, get it, give it anything that's got a carbon chain on it, and it will oxidize the shit out of that motherfucker. No kidding. It's just, it's just, it's like, it's like a military multi-fuel vehicle. You know, the one that, that yeah. I'm thinking about, like, the apocalypse vehicle, you can put, you know, chicken grease in there, and motor oil, and gasoline, and diesel, Biodiesel, it doesn't matter. It's just you pour it in, it will use it, you know? Yeah. That's kind of what the heart is. So your heart, even despite the fact that the heart's, you know, amazing, like heart, your heart is part of what's going on, what you're trying to evaluate and get up to speed here with your scenario. So it makes your heart's getting more stressed than the average person. Yeah. And just by nature, like the one of the primary sources of free radicals is superoxide radical. So if you look at the energy chain, electron transport chain, and um, uh, ATP production, oxidative phosphorylation in muscle cells, you've got electrons that are being moved around in this electron transport chain. You've got oxygen that's being used up, and you've got water that's being produced. And there's about, like, on average, I think it's like a 3 to 5% kind of error rate in that you get some sort of, get sort of a, a, like a packing error, you know? 
like Amazon's pretty good. They don't even have that much of a rate. But every once in a while, you just get the wrong thing. You know, it gets misdelivered, what have you. Uh-huh. That happens with in the mitochondria, and you get an electron loaded onto an oxygen, um, and you get a, you get a free radical that oh. needs to be quenched. So literally, exercise. This is one of the ways in which exercise increases free radical stress and stimulates the need for, in this case, thinking particularly about a mitochondrial biogenesis. Is that you need you, that stress comes from this error in oxidative phosphorylation? You make free radicals. The system says, "Ah, shit! We need this is a stimulus for having more mitochondria because obviously we're going to be making more free radicals. That means we we're making more energy at a faster rate. We need more mitochondria. You also upregulate enzymes like catalase and superoxide dismutase and glutathione peroxidase, all the enzymes that are involved with, with free radical quenching, so your, your body adapts. But you're also using up the endogenous um, free radical quenching molecules yeah. that you can't produce. Things like vitamin E and vitamin C, vitamins, you know, and CoQ10 is right along in there as a um, as a has, a has multiple functions, but right in there as a free radical quencher. So you, I, there's just no doubt in my mind, I don't know how much, but you are someone who can certainly benefit from having, you have a higher need, I believe, for antioxidants in your diet or coming in some way, shape, or form. So it doesn't surprise me whatsoever, given the way all your sort of paths converge to energy production and stress free radical production that the CoQ10 would be helpful for you without a doubt. That makes total sense, man. And that's kind of what Victoria was thinking too. That's exactly. Yeah. 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 What she was thinking as well in that both of those things would help the coenzyme Q10 and the L carnitine. They'd both be a benefit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, they work synergistically. we have anything else here on our, our list, Scott, you had mentioned YouTube factoids, but I wasn't sure oh, where you're going yeah. with that. <laughs> No, it's just kind of a simple, a simple thought. So sometimes, you know, YouTube is, it's a, um, it's a free for all comment wise, of course, and we get lots of awesome comments and questions. And but sometimes people say, oh, well, this is the answer to this question that you didn't have an answer for, or what have you. And I want to know, like, personally, I like to know where that information comes from. So if someone, I've seen this just a couple of times, and it happened on one of the videos. I was digging around some old videos looking for questions today and i saw a couple times where people said oh well this is why and i'm like like okay but i have no idea where you found that because i haven't found that and i've looked so if you have a scientific factoid yeah you know this is does this i would love to know where people found that just so i can dig into it and like it because in in my quote-unquote line of work you got to back up as dudley would say you know show me the data yeah you know you're going to say that this does that or this is metabolized into that or we know that this you know this happens when you do this and it's a very you know science it's not like well i have found this to be the case it's like this this is a biochemical process well there's going to be some science somewhere that it came from absolutely you know? and if you if you just say you know i've, I've always heard that this is the case like okay that's cool because that hap- like that's totally but if you say it black and white if you have the the data if you have a, a paper Back it up. It doesn't hardly ever happen. And in the science world, um, actually, as I've mentioned many times before, if, if you don't cite think, cite information, it can be considered a, an academic integrity violation. Oh, not to appropriately. Yeah, it's literally, it's it's 
it's not the same, but it's along the lines of plagiarism. Mm-hmm. You're, you're making un, you know unsubstantiated statements. You just need to say like, give a source. You, it's okay to make an error like, oh, I thought it was in that paper, or that paper like the paper could be fraught with errors. Mm-hmm. You know, but at least you're saying you know we know that when you do this, this happens, and you and you if you back it up with a paper that was just awful. That's you know full of holes and really doesn't very well substantiate what you're saying. At least you said you know this is what you know this is the source of this information. Yeah. But if you have no sources, like I was like, oh, okay, well, I'm not gonna like try to track that down because I've looked and I haven't found that. So I would just lo- would love to know. So um, that's just a uh, a request to, uh, to any like anywhere and everywhere you know. But YouTube seems like that's that's a kind of a common common theme. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't. I've got one more here, Scott. This is from our right. uh, live feed here, and he also said um, it, it's kind of long. So if we wanted to skip it, I get it. He said um, from Anthony. He says um, I am simplifying a lot here, so please help me out. NAC allows the introduction of cysteine in the neuron, thus producing uh, glutathione. This happens in all body cells, but I will focus on the neuron. So far, so good. While cysteine enters the neuron cell, glutamine, uh, glutath- yeah, glutamate uh, also uh, exits it and tethers to the M. Glue GLU two, um, not sure of the name. A receptor specific to glutamate that is uniquely an inhibitor receptor, um, having activated the MGLU two. Now the glutamate uh, is unable to reach the adjacent. What's that word there? Synthetic. Synth. Synth. synth synthetic space synaptic synaptic space okay mm-hmm. and ultimately excite the neuron cells um, as a cascade of non-excitement this should be extremely relaxing and allowing for beneficial sleep am i correct can you can you kind of go over what he's saying here because i'm not sure i'm trying to read it and understand it at the same time so i don't feel like i'm doing a good job here um yeah I mean, I, tell you, I have to see where he's. This is this would be actually this would be a great example of where he drew this information because he's not sure of the name um, of this receptor. Okay. So, so he's just sort of remembering this. So he basically he's asking about if um, N-acetylcysteine provides a source of cysteine that has an effect in the brain via a glutamate receptor that would lead to someone being more relaxed and being able to fall asleep again. So the thing that's so interesting about brain research that I found is that it's almost, we're still, we're still sort of in the dark ages a little bit in terms of looking at uh, neurotransmitters and things that bind to receptors because so often um, people are not paying attention to what area of the brain that takes part in. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like I'm going to take, um, it's looking at whole body protein synthesis versus the muscle protein synthesis. 
or looking at, you know, we see this effect in bone, so it must happen in muscle oh, this way, or it happens okay. in skin, you know, like you've got you've got different structures in the brain that are responsible for the extent to which you're awake, you know, your emotions, like the all the various structures, the limbic system, for instance. So it's going to depend on, you know, where where in the brain these effects are happening. I don't know about that particular receptor, what he's referring to, to be honest. Like, that's, I have to go, let's see, he posted something else here. Let me see. He says, in short, NAC as a relaxer slash sleep promoter via this mechanism of anti excitement of neurons. Haha, I know that I might have made a mess explaining that. No, no, I, I totally got that. Yeah, that okay. makes sense. No, I, I understood his question. So, um, but I'm. Well, he just restarted to help me because I didn't get it. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> I gotcha. 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 Okay. So, um, yeah, it's it's a good question. So here's, um, this, that's sort of my take on like the science and like how how well can we take that mechanism of binding a receptor um, and extrapolate that to basically the conscious level of perception. Um, you got to know where it's happening. So can we take an effect on Skin cells and extrapolate that to muscle cells, not necessarily. I see. But so can you take that effect on a receptor at the receptor level and extrapolate that to brain function? Not necessarily. Um, I don't know where he's pulling that information from because I don't even I don't know, even know about that mechanism or which receptor exactly he's, he's talking about per se. Um, there's tons. There's so many receptors. They're finding new receptors in the brain. For neurotransmitters and find out new things are transmit neurotransmitters they didn't know they were uh, all the time. Hmm. It's like it's, it's the more the more we find out we know the more we find out we don't know, which is just beautiful. But here's the here's the bottom line. Um, well, there's one there's one thought before I, I get to that. You know, N-acetylcysteine like is a is an antioxidant. It, it does. There are some studies showing it ha does have those negative effects if you take large doses on muscle growth. Oh, yeah. The way that way around that um, potentially is timing. So if you train in the morning, you set in motion all those molecular signals for the muscle growth. You've initiated all, all everything. You might be able to take something like this at night and not have an issue. Yeah, it's got like a ten or twelve hour half life or something like that. I I mentioned in my book. I note the the value there. So maybe it's six to eight. Anywhere it's it's not. It doesn't. You don't take a dose of N-acetylcysteine. It's not hanging around for days or weeks. So there's some timing that you could do to get around um, a mega dosing effect, but the other proof that's in the pudding is does it make you feel tired? <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, really? Like, do, you, do you need to know necessarily that it's going to do that? Because it's actually, can you get N-acetylcysteine? They cut, that was taken off the market because no, it was it never was taken off the market. No, yeah, no, it okay, was never taken off the market. It, the, it not yet, at least. The FDA okay. is making a push to take it off the market and and make it a prescription okay. only. And so because Amazon wants to be politically correct and wants to be that in cahoots it. with the government and be its little bitch, it took it off of Amazon. But you can still get NAC everywhere. Okay, okay. I didn't know. Not on Amazon, but other Just places. Just not on Amazon. So, you know, go somewhere okay. else, guys. All right. And keep buying yeah, it. Buy the so, shit out of it. As an American, you should. Yeah. You should. Let's see if we can get this one taken down. Let's piss off the people at <laughs> <on> Amazon. <laughs> Oh, man. I know someone who works for Amazon. Um, anyway. Give him the finger uh, for me. 
about NAC. Okay, I will. Yeah. I'll tell her in German <laughs> to go screw herself. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's some really funny ways to say kiss my butt in German. Um, <laughs> Can you name one of them right now? Yeah. It comes off Deutsch sagen. Du kannst mich mal Kreuzwärtsen sprachen vor mich am Arschdecken. <laughs> what means, he said it means you can kiss my ass crossways and by making a spiral <laughs> <laughs> you lick my butt so it's kind of like do it this way now too. it's pretty uh yeah it's it's very visual um so but you know i'm not saying go and like you know buy a, a bottle of you know or, or like a big packet of nac powder and like down it and see you know if it knocks you out yeah but um we could take the dose, you know, try it. Uh, I don't know. There's variability as, as to whether having taking with food or with food increases um, absorption or bioavailability. So, you know, he might try um, try taking it uh, like a night when he's, you know, hasn't eaten for a while or in the mornings when he's not going to train where he might have a nap. You know, it's Sunday, you can take a nap on a Sunday. Don't miss the podcast, of course. But you could do it that way. And test it out and see if it has an effect. Yeah, you know, on 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 his sleep. Um, you know, not potentially a you know bad thing if you're gonna if you're gonna take you know something like that. Not a bad time to take it if you train early and take it away from your training and it helps you sleep. It helps you with your recovery. You know, sounds like it could be a, a pretty good deal. But I don't know. It's not that I know. I don't know of anyone who's said you know I love to take N-acetylcysteine, but it makes me tired. Yeah. Yeah, I've and, never uh, heard that. Could, and, and, and I think yeah. you're getting to a, a, I think an interesting point here that you, you, you find things out just simply by, just by experience, and and that people would say across the board, like like we, you could take like P5P on the other hand, and be like, hey, I, I find mm-hmm. that it it helps me with rest, whether you realize it or not. Mm-hmm. It's like you know you the, you can start drawing those conclusions just by taking it, if that makes yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, no, you like literally. I mean, you, that's you know, that's there's so many things too. I mean, there could even be biological individuality there. You know, some people um, like uh, diphenhydramine, Benadryl. Yeah, you know, I'm not this makes right a out. lot of people really. Not everyone though. I know people yeah. who you know, it doesn't take make them. They take it because for their allergies, and they're like they're just plod along through the day. I'm like, I wouldn't be able to do. I mean, my allergies would be better, but I'd just be lying in bed asleep because that stuff makes me so tired. Yeah, so. Yeah, so that that's that's something to consider. You can go and look and see, find those papers that they haven't been retracted or what have you. On um, they should report side effects, hopefully, and you can see if somnolence or um, fatigue is a side effect of dosing that. Because I don't know what doses they used in any of that research, right. but um, that would be one way to look and see if someone else has reported that. Because I haven't heard of that before, but I like you digging in the way he did. That's very very cool. Yeah. You, sometimes you get so deep in the rabbit hole you're looking for it's like it's like oh, it's almost almost like you like you go to your electrical panel and you start checking your breakers and like you call the electrical company it's like come my light won't come on I'm like did you try the switch it's like oh oh yeah never mind it works it's like just take it and figure it out you know who, who cares what the research might say necessarily as long as you're not endangering yourself yeah you know just try it out well, with that said, we should get out of here, Scott. I know you. it's Mother's Day as we record this. You've got some stuff to do. Yes, You've got plans is. for the day. Happy I've Mother's got day. plans for the day, too. So, uh, yeah. And, and any mothers out there, happy Mother's Day to you. Thanks for watching.
Yeah, Victoria's a dog mom, so happy dog mom. I will I will pass <laughs> that message on to her. Uh, guys, go to uh, byobbcoach.com. You can re- find Scott's book over there. You can get the hardcover. If you go over to uh, don't go to Amazon. Go to you can go to Barnes and Noble. It's there too, isn't it? Yes, Barnes and Noble. Yep, and you'll see a picture Amazon of, today. You'll see a picture of this amazing dog. I'm trying to get my finger there. Rusty, did you see in the picture? You're rusty. Yes. Yep, he's there on that front. Someone asked, you know, if that was my if that was my Tinder picture. <laughs> I saw that. I saw that. that was I'm great, like, man. I'm like, no. Tinder's the only dating site I have not tried. There's my boy. Yes. Here he is. Um, because that's that's not what I'm not at all what I'm looking for. Um, but uh, I may have used that picture on a dating site. Who knows? I've tried them all. <laughs> strike, strike, strike. Well, with that said, too, uh, go to truenutrition.com. You can use our code THINK, which somebody mentioned in here. Yeah, you can get EAAs from True Nutrition. They've got a couple different things. They've got, like, the flavored EAAs, or you can get, like, I go the just raw bulk method, which you got to understand, they don't taste good. EAAs are not easy to flavor, but you can flavor them yourself with some Crystal Light. I find that works out just fine. And you can, you want to mix it real thin anyway, a lot of water, a lot of water. With, with they have the Instant Tides too there, right? Yeah, yeah, they Before do. People miss yeah, that yeah. works. I think that, that mixes better. Yeah, I think that, yeah, they have the Instant really? Um and then they also have like a, 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 like a product, EAA Plus it's called, and it has like a really good mango flavor. So you can go that route if you want. Um, and of course, go to supplementsource.ca in Canada, where uh, you could buy NAC or EAC. You can get whatever you want over there. It's Canada, <laughs> land of the free, kind of. And Ephedrine. And yeah, there you go. All right, guys, we'll see you soon. Thanks, Scott. Adios. 